Hello. Thank you for tuning in. This is Cross Defense, and I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And we are here every Monday afternoon equipping the mind, comforting the conscience, setting the, our imagination on fire with the clear word of God, the law, which puts things in order, and the gospel, which comforts our conscience. We're going to be talking today, for the first part, about the devil's attack, the devil's snicker attack. I'll tell you more about that. I've been thinking about it some. I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. And then we're going to have my good friend and co-host of Table Talk Radio, Pastor Evan Gagline, Pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Rogue River, Oregon. He's going to join us for the second half. I think he wants to talk about the atheists and the attack uh, the attack on God uh, that's known as theodicy. It's, that if, there's good, if God is good and things are bad, then something's wrong. So we'll wait for that. If you can hang on for the next 15 minutes or so, we'll get him on the line and we'll talk about that. But first, I want to... I want to discuss this with you. This Oh, by the way, if you want to give us a call, you can do that. Uh, here's the numbers. Are you ready? You, you've wanted your whole life to call. You just haven't known the number. Well, now you are about to hear it. If you're in St. Louis, it's 314-821-0850 or anywhere else in the world, 1-800-730-2727, 1-800-730-2727. And you can call, talk to Stephanie, tell her what you want to talk about. We'll get you on the program. Now, to the thing, the devil's snicker attack. It occurs to me that... Most of the time, when the devil is arguing against our Christian doctrine, he's not arguing uh, directly. He's not taking on the doctrine. It's not, it's not mind to mind or word to word. The assaults on our Christian doctrine, in other words, are not well-articulated arguments, but most often come in the form of mockery, of there, that, there's a, that there's a snicker, a, 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 a laugh, an embarrassment that we are invited to embrace as Christians. This certainly is the fact in the culture. I mean, you just look at how uh, art portrays the Christian, and you see that this is the case. There's a um, there's a general mockery of Christianity, and if you ever have Christians that are, are uh, that are there in popular culture, be it the priests or the pastors or the Christian dads or whatever, they're generally sort of buffoons. They're kind of behind the times. They they don't they don't know what's going on. They they have no sensitivities. They're just sort of crude or 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 bumbly. They're they're the object of scorn. They're the object of jeer. And this can often happen with our with our peers and our families. That there's a there's just a a general sort of a laughter that comes at the Christian, and and not just at the Christian, but at our Christian doctrine. So we we might articulate a particular doctrine this way or that way, and what happens is that 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 the result is not an argument against it, but just sort of a a snort or a. A, a giggle, a, a, a jeer. This is the this is the devil's snicker attack, and it could be on any of our doctrines. And we might, I, I especially notice it when it comes to the first article, of the creed, when we say that we believe that God created the world. <clears throat> we we think that evolution isn't really true, and people kind of look at us like we're hillbillies backwards. They don't, they, don't, they don't make an argument for evolution. They just mock the person that doesn't believe it. Or when it comes to the second article, the things of Jesus, when it comes to the virgin birth, oh, we know better. We know how, how children are born. Well, 
Joseph and Mary knew how children are born. That's why Joseph was going to divorce Mary. That's why Mary was so stunned. That's why the people, they, they also knew how children are born and that virgins don't give birth to children. That's why it's a big deal. You, there's this kind of modern arrogance that says, oh, yeah, back then people didn't know how babies came to be. Well, if they didn't know why babies, how babies came to be, if they thought virgins would give birth all the time, then why was it a big deal that Jesus was born of a virgin? Of course they knew how children were born. I mean, this idea that we've reached this sort of pinnacle of enlightenment in our modern society and that the people of the ancient world were just these fools. They didn't know up from down. It's just a, it's just a bad view of history, arrogant view of history. It, but it, it fits in with this whole jeer tactic. Or, or we talk about things about the church. We talk about that the church is the bride of Christ. We talk about the Lord's Supper, that it's the body and the blood. We talk about baptism for babies and all this sort of stuff. And it's just, it's not, these things are not, the devil doesn't take them on directly and say, here's the 15 reasons why you ought to not believe in creation, or here's the 20 reasons why you ought not to believe in the virgin birth. The, the, uh, the attack is most often, at least from, from what I think, it's most often comes to us as simply laughter. Like a, um, a mockery that you, for being a Christian, must be the biggest of all fools. Th this is an old strategy. I w you know, we're studying the martyrs. We, we're, every once in a while, if you go to the YouTube, YouTube, how do you do this? You go to YouTube.com slash Wolfmuller1. You'll find some of the YouTube videos that we've been making lately. And uh, for a while, and we got some more planned, we've been doing Martyr Monday, where we talk about the martyrs and talk about their stories. And one of the martyrs was Romanus. And they were torturing him, tearing out his beard, slicing open his sides, flailing his skin off so you could see his ribs with a sword and all this other nonsense. But the biggest mockery, the biggest uh, insult that came to him was mockery. The, the, the prefect there who was, who was trying to get Romanus to renounce the faith, he came and he says, don't you know that Jesus is just the God who came yesterday? These Roman gods are old. You should worship them. These, th this, your religion is new. It was, it was a mockery. And in fact, I think when we think of the threefold suffering of Jesus, the physical suffering, the emotional suffering, and the spiritual suffering of Jesus, the one that the Gospels talk the most about is the mockery, that he was slapped on the face, that they spit on him. I mean, what if you to get to get at this suffering? I think the best way to get at it is to ask this question. If you had a choice, say say I was going to get after you, I was going to punish you for some reason, and you have two options. The first option is I could punch you in the face, and the second option is I could strip you naked in public. Which do you choose? Now, how many of you would choose? You would say immediately, punch me in the face. Now, now, why? Because because one brings physical pain, but the other brings brings shame, and we simply don't want to be ashamed. So when the devil attacks us, he attacks us with this idea of shame. Now, I think I realized this a few days ago, or maybe a few months ago, when we were having this debate about the twenty-four hour creation. It, it, this flares up every now and again. People are looking at the Old Testament and the, and the days of creation, and they say, well, is it, is it six literal 24-hour days, or does it mean eras and long periods of time? And, and everyone gets in a fight about it because, well, because why? This is the thing. Why? It's not, it's not because what the Bible says isn't clear. I think the reason why we get in a debate about that is because we're ashamed. I know... I could, if you ask me, hey, Pastor Wolfmuller, what do you think about the six days? I said, well, of course. It says there was night and there was there was evening and there was morning. It's a day. It's a normal day. If it was 
23 hours and four minutes or if it's 25 hours and two minutes. I'm not sure if things slowed down. or But it's a normal day. It's not a big, long era of time. Of course not. It's, what the, it's simply what the Bible says. And, and I could sit there and defend it. I could, I could talk about all the Hebrew uses of yom and all this sort of stuff. So I know in my mind what I, what I confess and what I believe about that. But I realized as I was talking about that, that I am, and here I'm confessing my sin, I am a little bit ashamed of that doctrine. Because I know that when I come out in public and say, hey, God created the world in six 24-hour days, six literal days, that I get mocked by the world, by the evolutionists, by the unbelievers, and even by half of the Christians who want to be accepted and smart and all this other stuff. I want to be intellectual and enlightened and all this kind of crazy stuff. And I, I realized that the pressure brought on me to deny the 24-hour days was not the pressure of the mind, the pressure of, of some sort of intellectual argument. It was simply the pressure of shame. It was a jeering thing. I, I say I believe that God created the world in six hours and people say, <clears throat> hillbilly, goofball unenlightened knucklehead, whatever. The argument then being made for the days not being 24 hours is, the, is not an actual argument of words. It's the argument of acceptability. It's the argument of, uh, of being accepted by the culture or rejected by the culture. In other words, it's the argument of shame. Now, I think it's important for us to recognize this, and the Scriptures teach us to recognize it as well. I'm going to give you a couple of verses, but the first one is this, Psalm 4. This is a Psalm of David. Verse 1, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distresses. Have mercy on me. Hear my prayer. Now, here here it is. Verse 2, How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Now look at that. David says that the strategy of the enemy, the strategy of his enemies and the enemies of all every Christian, the strategy is to take the things that we ought to glory in and to turn them into our shame. To take take to things that we which we ought to boast about and make them the things that we never want to mention. I think, by the way, this might be the devil's way that he attacks evangelism because I want to go out there and talk to people, but the thing that I should be most anxious to talk about, the gifts of Jesus Christ and the gift of my baptism and the glory of God in Christ and the Word of God, the thing that I should be most boastful about, most excited about, the thing that I should love most of all, the devil has made me to be ashamed of it. To to know that because I'll get mocked for for being a Christian, that, well, just maybe I, I ought to not mention it. Now, there's a, I, I, I'm trying to get the picture here, but can you imagine if, just for example, that I won some sort of, like, 10 gold medals for pole vaulting or something in the Olympics or whatever. Who knows? I used to be a pole vaulter, by the way, in middle school, but I never qualified for a meet because I could never get over six feet. Talk about shame. Let's pretend I went to the Olympics for pole vaulting, and I won 10 gold medals, and, and I'm wearing them around, and, or I hang them on the wall. And you know how you do it. You put it on the wall in your house, and you put them where – you don't put them that's the first thing that people see when they walk in, but you definitely want people to see it because that's your glory. And you're not going to hide your glory. You're going to let people know about your glory. I won the gold medal. <laughs> 
Now, this is how we should be as Christians. I mean, we really have things to boast in. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, so that we're, in fact, commanded to glory in the gifts of God. It should be that we go around to the world saying, hey, I, I don't want to brag, but but I'm baptized. I mean, I don't, I'm trying to be humble about it, but it is awesome. <laughs> oh, you're not baptized? Well, no, don't worry. You can be. We should go out into the world to be and be and boast about. Hey, I'm part of God's family. I'm I'm a child of God. He He's called me His own. Hey, I I don't mean to brag. I don't I don't want to be a show off. But but my sins are forgiven. My God bled and died for me. He's making a place for me in heaven. I don't I don't mean to brag, but. But these are these are this see this is our glory. This is the this is the greatest thing that we have in all of the world. These these gifts of God are the things that we ought to be most proud of. Hey, I don't I, I don't mean to brag, but but I actually know how the world was created. I don't I don't want to brag, but I know what marriage is and family. I I, I don't want to brag, but I know what right and wrong is. I got ten commandments here. I mean, this, these are the things that we that we ought to boast about. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. There's a sanctified boasting in these things, not because we have discovered them, but because the Lord has given them to us. That He's done them in our midst. That He's given us all these fantastic and great gifts. It's abs- it's absolutely stunning and amazing. And but the devil comes along, and he wants to turn our glory into our shame, so that we don't mention it, that we bo- don't boast of it, that we don't brag about the fact that we're that we're baptized, that we're called to be the Lord's. That we, that we belong to him. Now, I think it's half the battle is starting to recognize the devil's strategy. That when we, when we search our own conscience and when we search our own mind and we start to recognize that the devil is assaulting us by trying to make us ashamed of those things which we should boast in and glory in and delight in, then we can recognize it and say, hey, devil, you, you can't make me be ashamed because that is the riches of God. That is the treasure that the Lord Jesus wants me to have. That's his gift for me. Paul starts his great treatise on the gospel with precisely this language in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed. And I won't be ashamed. I refuse to be ashamed. I glory in that gospel. I delight in that gospel. I put that gospel before the world. And the world might come and, 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 and assault it. It might mock me. It might, it might jeer me. The devil's going to come full on with his snicker attack. But I will not fall for it. Because if Jesus, if my Lord Jesus was willing to be ashamed, if he, if he suffered the cross, enduring the shame of it, then I can endure the shame of the world for the glory that God has given to me, for the glorious gifts that are mine in Christ Jesus. So the devil's, devil's snicker attack, it comes to us. It comes subtly. It comes constantly through culture, through our peers, everywhere else it comes. But now we're onto it. We're not ignorant of his devices. And we fight back. By snickering at the devil himself. Oh, devil. You want to turn my glory into shame. It, you can't. Good try. I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. His blood is my righteousness. His death is my life. His shame is my glory. And you cannot take it from me. Because I'm his. And he is mine. And that is good news. You're listening to Cross Defense. It's Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. 
We're going to go to the break now. We're going to try to find Pastor Gagline, see what he's doing, pull him out of the Trout River or something. Maybe he's changing a diaper. Get him on the line and see what he has to talk about. So stick with us through the break. We'll be right back. Proverbs 27, 17 tells us, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. That's why weekday mornings at 8 a.m., two Missouri Synod pastors test their mettle against the Holy Scriptures, certain that not only will they come out better for it, but so will you. The sword of the Spirit is sharp to the touch, but you need practice wielding it. Check out Sharper Iron, 8 a.m., every weekday on Worldwide KFUO. Given. It's a word we seem to hear less in our world today. We believe the Word of God as it teaches Christ is given for you. That's what we at KFUO bring you. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Find the Give Now button at kfuo.org to support this mission. kfuo.org or call 1-800-844-0524 to make your gift today. For years on Sunday mornings, Worldwide KFUO has been broadcasting live worship services for those unable to attend worship or for those who enjoy hearing God's Word. This Sunday, our 8 a.m. worship comes from Blessed Savior Lutheran Church in Florissant, Missouri with presiding pastor, Reverend Matt Rogland. Our 10.30 worship comes from Our Savior Lutheran Church in Fenton, Missouri with presiding pastor, Reverend Mark Sell. Join us on Sunday mornings on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. All right, welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, your host. You can reach us on, uh, uh, you can call and join the conversation. Here's the phone numbers. If you're in St. Louis, it's 314-821-0850. Or anywhere in the world, 837, wait a minute. Let's try that again. 800-730-2727. You can call, join with questions. you got questions about the devil's snicker attack, call him. We'll ask Pastor Gagline, who knows if he was listening. So that'll be fun to see. I have to, uh, joining me for the rest of the program, my great friend, new father, Pastor Evan Gagline, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Rogue River, Oregon. Pastor Gagline, welcome to Cross Defense. Oh, it's great to be with you, and especially nice to be with you on a real radio show. That's pretty I think it's really something that uh, Pastor Gagline have been, and I have been doing for 75 years, a, sh- a radio show called Table Talk Radio. Is that how long? 75 years? Well, you have to do the conversion at 75 years in, in listener years. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit, it's like 10 years or something in real life. Uh, Table Talk Radio is the world's second most famous Lutheran theological game show. One of the nice things about that radio show is that Pastor Gagline does all the work. I don't even have to notice when the show starts or stops. Now it's all on this show. i got to pay attention to the music and all sorts of other things. It's really yeah, quite a hassle. You still have other people doing all the hard work for you, so don't don't try to claim too much here. <laughs> 
Well, what do you got? I asked you, hey, I said, hey, bring something curious. You said, well, I got something. Uh, what's, it, what's it look like? Well, so, um, you know, one of the things that we find as we talk to people, um, and maybe this comes in two forms, but you talk to people about why they don't believe in God, and one of the most common responses is what in theology we call theodicy, or in other words, it's, um, well, if God is all-powerful and good, then why would he let bad things happen to good people? This is kind of the premise. And the way it comes in two forms is you have um, sometimes the, the more, say, like the hardened atheist or the, or the somewhat more committed um, skeptic who wants to say, look, that the premise that God is all-powerful and good just does not make sense uh, given the uh, suffering in the world. But then you also have the person who is not necessarily seeking out to be a debater at all, but a person who maybe has had some kind of tragedy in their life. Maybe they lost their spouse or a child or something like this, and, um, and just can't, can't reason that together. If God did exist, and perhaps I even prayed that God would prevent this suffering from happening or, or stop the suffering, and it didn't happen, the conclusion then is God doesn't exist. So... Um, I, I wanted to look into that a little bit, and I came across this article written by J.H. McKenna, uh, who is a, uh, a senior lecturer, lecturer for the History of Religious Ideas at University of California, Irvine. And uh, she wrote a blog post, and it was uh, carried as an opinion piece by the Huffington Post. And its title is, Is God Decent and Strong? And so she kind of uses an analogy to, to say that, well, God isn't actually decent or strong because of suffering in the world. Okay, so let's have it. How's the argument go? Okay, so let me just read a little bit of this, and, and you can kind of see how, the, how, how it goes. It says, consider it this way. A decent and strong man sits idly nearby as a six-year-old child beats a four-year-old child to death with a small hammer. Since the man is widely known to be decent and strong, we must account for his sitting idly nearby as he watches a murder um, he could easily stop. So how to account for the man's inactivity? And then she, she lays forward then some uh, plausible explanations, which we can see are actually arguments that oftentimes Christians and other theists might use to explain the, the problem of theodicy. Uh, says, let's start by blaming another character, slightly out of the frame but present in the action. This person tries to tries at every step to arrest the decency and strength of the man, this person, Diablos by name, is not the man who is at fault. But wait, there may be a problem here. Is Diablos stronger than the man? No. If not, is Diablos at least as strong as the man? No. Then why doesn't the decent and strong man push Diablos aside and stop the petite murderer? So the argument here then is, you know, why does God allow suffering in the world, and some would say then, well, the reason they're suffering in the world is only because of the devil. So suffering isn't God's fault. Suffering is the devil's fault. And so this is saying, well, if God is more powerful than the devil, then he should still be able to stop it. What do you think about that? Now, so this is really interesting. So uh, because normally we use the term, uh, the, the terms of good, God is good, and God is powerful. But here, it's, it, it's almost, it's even reduced it down. It's not saying that there's a good and powerful man, but a decent and a strong man. Uh, I, I, do, you, do you have any thoughts about that shift in language? Hmm. Uh, maybe, I don't know, either it's trying to play to the analogy, um, 
or it's uh, I, I I think that it's trying to communicate. I don't think that there's an there's a a theological thought in that shift. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's trying to play to the analogy. So now that you can use uh, use the story of a of a man watching a boy rather than God and the people who suffer. What do you think? Yep. So I think I think that, that could be right. And so then, so okay. So the part of the problem is going to be if we're going to. I think by the end of this article, if we're going to if we're going to be able to make an argument against it, which maybe is not our office. Maybe we're not in fact called to defend God in this way. But I think it's going to be in the setup. So you set up the the story of here's a, a six year old beating a four year old to death. And there's a decent and strong man standing by watching it happen, and he he doesn't intervene, he doesn't he doesn't act, and so forth. I I think that setup is going to have some flaws in it, which we'll have to come around to. But yeah, then the right, uh, right. right. So as, as I was going to say, um, but it's interesting that the author, in using the term "strong," would actually play into a a, a, a little parable that Jesus himself says. So he says, um, if if uh, someone was to go in and, and plunder a man's goods, you must first bind the strong man. And what Jesus is talking about is the way that uh, Jesus is redeeming his creation. So, um, so it, it is kind of funny that uh, what, what the what the article puts forward as uh, a uh, implausible explanation for theodicy that well, God is in fact stronger, is the exact example that Jesus uses that God is stronger, he must bind the strong man, so Jesus is stronger than the strong man, he must bind the strong man, the devil, to plunder the goods who are lost and fallen creation. Mm-hmm. But, but what's really going to uh, be mind-numbing for this author is the way, the manner in which Jesus binds the strong man, which is going to be uh, the very crucifixion of Christ itself. So that, that where the author is looking for God to be strong, um, the strong man is bound really by lowering himself. He defeats in weakness. And that, that's the thing that is missing in all of this. Yes, yes. So, okay, so I bet you, I'm just guessing, I don't know, but that the article's going to go through a handful of scenarios that we might use to try to justify the inaction of the strong man, right? Exactly. So the, so the first one is to say, well, there's a man opposing the strong man, his name is Diablo, but that doesn't count because he's also weaker than the strong man, so the strong man could beat him down and get to the kid, uh, so that doesn't count. What are the other options that they're going to try to say don't work? Okay, here's the next one. Let's say that the man has good reasons to permit the murder. Let's say one of these reasons is aesthetic. The man thinks goodness can only be appreciated by the demonstrations of its opposite. And let's add that the man sees an educative potential in permitting the murder. People will learn from this murder, and the child murderer will learn, the murdered child will learn, the parents of both will learn, and the larger community will learn. But wait, there is a problem here. It is not really, uh, sorry, there is, there is really no other way to appreciate the beauty or goodness of seeing an evil performed, uh, and that there is really no other way to learn life lessons than this. Of course, the author uh, is finding the negative in those questions. Uh, and whereas there is just one tiny murder, is it necessary to aesthetics and education to multiply murdered human beings into the millions? So the argument here is where someone would say, well, the only way to see goodness is to have evil 
so God would allow evil to occur so that one could appreciate and know goodness or even maybe even learn from the bad so that we can have good. That's okay. The Okay, so so here the argument would be: Well, the strong, the the good, the strong and decent man doesn't inter- intervene because for us to understand his strength, or for us to understand that some boys are good and some boys are bad, we have to let the bad boys be bad so that it can be demonstrated and so forth. But that now, okay, so what's the argument against that? I'd never heard that argument. By the way, the aesthetic argument of of good and evil. Had you had you actually heard any Christian articulate that against the problem well, of suffering? I'm not an expert on C.S. Lewis, but I think where C.S. Lewis says um, uh, there is no, ch- in the explanation of evil, there is no such thing as coldness, it's just the absence of heat, um, or where there is, uh, there's no such thing as darkness, just the absence of light. And so I think C.S. Lewis is trying to uh, really really explain the other side of the equation, that is, how do we explain that God would allow the devil to exist or evil to exist, and only to see the contrast? Hmm. Okay. So then how does, and, and did the argument, did I miss this, did the argument, did it unravel that argument yet, or did you, what do they say well, to that? Well, um, I think the argument is say, well, isn't there another way to do it, which I suppose there is um, a way, another way. But the, but, but the argument then continues into... Um, you could maybe let that stand as one example of suffering, but why uh, must allow millions suffer for for the sake of this aesthetic? I gotcha. I gotcha. Right. So so maybe there could be that could be the case with once, but not uh, w- suffering can't be multiplied. All you need is one example of suffering for this to hold true, and there shouldn't be this excess of suffering. Right. Exactly. Okay. Uh, how many arguments are they going to have, I wonder? Three or four. Okay. So four. we're ready for the next one, or do you, should okay. we should we sit on any of these? For, you tell me if you want to sit on any of these for longer, if we want to press through. Yeah, we, can, we can keep pressing through. That's fine. Okay. okay. Right, so the next one is, let's say the man permits the murder because it's a just punishment for the murdered victim. Since the victim was born with a moral taint inherited from an aboriginal calamity performed by the child's remotest parents. So this is, this is the argument that the, the, the child that's being murdered deserves to be murdered out of uh, punishment for original sin, okay? Uh, and so this is the rebut to that. It says, um, is this punishment too harsh and not fitting the crime? Is the punishment unjust since a system of jurisprudence penalizes children for the offenses of parents or great-grandparents. So in other words, this, this explanation doesn't work because, at least in the, in the eyes of the author, um, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. So letting, letting a four-year-old boy get murdered uh, does not fit the measure of his grandparents committing a crime, which also is not fair in the first place to punish a child for the sins, so to speak, of the fathers. Right. So that probably one that we can sit on. Yeah, yeah. So the, here's the argument of justice and injustice. So the Bible wrestles with this in, in Ecclesiastes, in Proverbs, in, in the Psalms, in, in fact, the whole thing, that justice is not meted rightly or, or perfectly in this life. Um, but some might argue, so, so I suppose the argument would be, why do people suffer? And the answer that Christian, that some might give as an apologetic would be simply to say, well, those who suffer deserve to suffer. 
Maybe they didn't even do anything bad. Maybe they just suffer because they're sinners or they inherited original sin or something like that, right? And here they say that that idea of justice is, in fact, unjust in and of itself. That's the right. It, it, I got it? Yeah, that's right. Now, we, one thing to point out here, though, is um, that is a, a moral judgment in and of itself, right? So, so who gets to pick what punishments fit the crimes? Now, in our jurisprudence, um, there is a, uh, a maximum penalty for, you say, like stealing a piece of bubble gum. You can't get thrown for life in prison for that or, or be executed for that. So we do have the notion of the punishment being the crime. But then we have to ask ourselves, um, what is the crime? And um, the crime uh, is not just what the parent has done, although that is how uh, we enter into the sinful life but that it would seem to ignore the very transgression of the individual itself. Um, so where God says um, that he who sins shall surely die, he has set up the punishment for transgression, sin against him, as death itself. So, um, so, so if God is actually God, and this is, this is the point I think that the author is trying to avoid, if God is really God, he is the one who gets to call the shots. He's the one who gets to determine whether the punishment fits the crime. And it seems that the author just doesn't like that setup and so ignores it all altogether. Right. That's right. Now, we would, we would say, though, that suffering is not... We, I, I don't think we would make... I mean, we haven't... Our argument has not here been made and therefore refuted. You, you hinted I, at I, it earlier. Yeah. But so we would not, we would not want to argue that the reason why bad things happen is because people deserve it. Yeah, that I think... A, right. I, I think at most we, we would admit that uh, suffering is at least in existence in the world because sin has entered the world, so that if we were all living in the Garden of Eden, there wouldn't be death, there wouldn't be suffering... But because sin entered the world, um, there is suffering. Now, I think the distinction you're making, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's one thing to say that we're suffering because sin exists, because there is sin. And it's another thing to say that we're suffering as a punishment for that sin. Right. That's right. So we live in a fallen world. Things are falling apart, crumbling all around us. Uh, and we were able to recognize that, and we're oftentimes the victims of that. But it's not to say that there's a there's a direct equation between this particular transgression and that particular punishment that happens to us. Right. Uh, we got like two and a half minutes before we hit the break. We want to do one more argument. Give us one more paragraph. Sure, sure. Um, here it goes. It says, um, let's say the man esteems free will of the murderer above the life of the victim. Why is free will the most important value at stake here? Why is free will more valuable than life itself? Wouldn't any parent interpret the free will of a child at the moment of danger to the child or others? Well, that one the author sets, sets up as self-refuting. So this is the argument that the reason suffering exists in the world is because God wants to allow free will to exist. And if he is to take away suffering, that is by necessity taking away free will, and God doesn't want that. So this is the argument that free will exists higher and more valuable to God than um, the absence of suffering. Uh, We've got to take apart that one a little bit more, too, because I think the argument of free will is the argument most often used by Christians to, def- to, to take on this argument. Why is the, How can God be both good and there be all sorts of evil in the world? So we'll, we'll talk about that after the break. If you're listening, you're listening to Cross Defense. 
If you're listening, you're listening to Cross Fence. Oh, this is Monday afternoon. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. You are listening to KFUO Radio. And the phone number, if you want to jump in and talk with Pastor Gagline uh, and about the problem of evil, is if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850 or anywhere in the world, 800-1-800-730-2727. We're going to go to the break. We'll be back in just a minute. Talk some more about the problem of evil, the argument against the existence of God, how the, the Christian might think about this both pastorically and apologetically. Uh, stay tuned. Just a few minutes. We'll be right back. This week on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. We'll talk about how to think around corners with Peter Slayton. And we'll talk with the Reverend Dr. Mark Wood about everyone his witness training. We'll learn what children are learning in Lutheran schools this year. We'll find out about starting a Lutheran high school. And we'll celebrate our last day with Ray, our Lutheran Young Adult Corps volunteer. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO. Underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. KFUO is faithful to the Word of God. Listen daily to KFUO as we focus on salvation through Christ Jesus. Generations have heard KFUO proclaim the good news through our talk programs, music programs, and worship services. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. KFUO, faithful, scriptural, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. We are the messenger of good news. KFUO. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of a creed, a concise formulation of belief, and a rich tradition found throughout the Bible. An ancient Israelite creed was the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Early Christians formed creeds about Jesus. One is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. An early understanding of Jesus' life. A creed isn't meant to replace the Bible, but to give focus to the beliefs found in the Bible. The resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Welcome back to Cross Defense. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller joining you this every Monday afternoon uh, talking about Oh, this is we talked about scripture, talking about the the Lord's gifts to us, talking about the challenges to the Lord's gifts that are brought to us in the culture and the world. And Pastor Evan Gagline, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Rogue River, Oregon, is my guest uh, for the last part of the show. And we, he's been um, reading to us this article from the Huff Post about what's the, what's the thing called? Uh oh, Pastor Gagline, I didn't hear you. Are you there still? Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you now. What's, what is the name of the article? Is God Decent and Strong? Is God Decent and Strong? And so far, we've had the argument that... Uh, so so this is the old problem of evil. If God is good and God is powerful, why is there so much bad stuff? And the assumption is that God would intervene with his goodness and his strength to stop the bad stuff. And 
And we we see that he does it oftentimes in this world, do that, at least not in the way we expect him to. So why not? Does the devil stop him? That's been refuted. He has good reason because he wants his goodness, he wants goodness and evil to stand in, in contradistinction to each other. That doesn't hold up. There's, there's justice in it. That doesn't hold up that there's, that there's the, that the strong, decent strong man wants to preserve the free will of the tyr- tyrannical six-year-old. And that's the argument that we've gotten to now that's being presented to us. And, and it says that no, uh, how, any parent would know that at some point you have to check the free will of a child because they're going to do all sorts of wicked, evil stuff. Now, this, I think, is a, this is a good place to, to really sit on it because most of the time I hear Christian apologists make an apologetic for the problem of evil. It does have to do with the, free, the question of free will. Do you, is, do you think that that's true? Is this where the argument most often settles? Right. Um, so so the, the notion is um, if, I, if I want free will, that is to say I want God uh, to let me to do what I want, then there's no other choice but then that there would be that he would have to allow those free-willed human beings to commit the crimes and heinous acts that they do. So, um, yeah, so in, in order to preserve man's autonomy, because, I mean, so, so really I think, and I think this is what you're getting at, what, where this is born out of is the, is the notion that, um, that, that the way that we become Christians is as an act of the will. So these apologists will want to preserve the uh, autonomy of the, of the will to the point that it becomes the defense against suffering, so that God is lo- allowing suffering so that I can have my free will, and that's ne- necessary so that I can, you know, commit my life to God or something like that. Right. Now, now I want to make, before we dig too far into this, I want to, I think it's important for us to make a distinction when we are talking about free will, because we can talk about free will theologically and we can talk about free will philosophically or ethically or morally or whatever and when we talk about free will theologically then we have this conversation like luther's bondage of the will or or like we're taught by the lutheran confessions how to confess the scriptures when when we say i believe that i cannot by my own reason or strength believe in jesus christ my lord or come to him in other words when it comes to the stuff of god believing in god trusting in his mercy so forth and so on our free will is, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We cannot make a decision for Christ. The, the, our will plays no part in conversion. In fact, our will is the thing that is converted. It's not, it's not the reason for conversion and so forth. And yet, when we talk about free will philosophically, ethically, and morally, and so forth, we do have a strong place for free will. We do not believe that everything is predetermined, that there is a freedom that the Lord has given to us that exists so that we do have some free choice on on some things. Now, I can't choose to fly to the moon by jumping on a trampoline, but I can choose what color socks to wear, or if I wear socks at all, I can choose what I'd like to do with this life. I can, I can even choose who, who I'd like to marry, although they have to be willing to marry me. There, there's choices that we have in this life that we do, in fact, have a free will, and we are, therefore, responsible for our choices. So we make that distinction between free will in the theological realm versus free will in the philosophical realm. And I think that there is a slight point to this, too, so that if, if someone objects and says, well, why does God allow suffering in the world? That is at least asserting to some extent that he should stop those who inflict suffering, like he should prevent it from happening. 
But I, I can't help but wonder if God is going to stop uh, that person from, from doing evil, uh, who's to say that he isn't going to stop all people from doing evil? See, we want to grade on a curve and say, stop the, the bad people doing things to me, but still let me do whatever I want. And the truth of the matter is, when Christ comes again in glory, he is going to do that. <laughs> he is going to finally stop uh, all suffering uh, in the world, and it won't be, for the evildoers, a good thing. It's, I mean, th- this is when finally he puts an end to all suffering, and it means that those evildoers are brought to an end. Uh, but for now, the question remains, uh, why does suffering, why does God allow suffering in this world? Yeah, that's something. Now, I think that there's um, there's really something on this, uh, because just to take this picture and say, okay, so here's the strong and decent man, and he's watching the six-year-old and the four-year-old. And the six-year-old, maybe he's not murdering the four-year-old, but he's punching the four-year-old on the face. Should he intervene then? Okay, well, yeah, he should intervene. Well, what if instead of punching him in the face, what, what if he's making jokes about him? Should he intervene then? Or what if he is thinking bad thoughts about him? Should he intervene then? In other words, at what point does is God then required to enter in to stop the evil? Uh, so, how, in other words, who who is to draw that line? And I suppose we we can sit there and draw the line according to our disgust or, or according to our whatever. But um, but 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 how how do we know if that is drawing the line right? How do we get to decide when when that's a right or wrong line to de, to draw? Right. Yeah. So so um, it kind of goes back to the fault of one of the arguments that was made earlier that I get to be, um, it, was, it was the question, you know, when, when the arguments put forward, well, this person's getting it out of punishment, and the person said, well, that's, that's not a punishment that fits the crime. It requires some kind of a moral judgment. And again, what, what all of these arguments assume is that we are the controllers of that moral judgment, so that I get to say um, that was a punishment that fit the crime, or at that level of transgression, he should intervene or should not intervene. So we really, I mean, this, this whole setup is trying to put ourselves as God rather than trying to actually deal with the, with the real solution. There is a way, too, that the Scriptures invite us to understand that God has a free will and that we have some degree of freedom in our will and that those two things do not contradict each other. We don't, want to, we don't want to build our whole theology on that, but as we think about this, the Lord does what he wants, but he also, in some ways, what he wants to do is to let us do what we want in some degree. And those things don't contradict each other. Pastor Gagelin, we have a, a caller. Tom has a question. I think it's how, how does this question apply the problem of evil? How do we apply it pastorally? Tom, are you there? Yes, I am. What's your question? Well, Tom, um, I... Just before the break, I heard a little bit of what you were saying about when bad things happen and stuff. And I, my my question relates to a real life situation. Um, I have a daughter who was hit by a drunk driver back in 2003 and was almost killed. And shortly after that, the pastor at our church, in a sermon, looked directly at me and my wife and said, "When bad things happen in your life." It means there's something wrong, and God's trying to teach you a lesson. Oh, good heavens. And you really need to search and find out, what is God trying to teach you? Uh, 
Boy. Uh, thank you, Tom, for calling. Uh, Pastor Gadeline, what, let's maybe take, let's take the response that uh, Tom got from the pulpit and, and see if that was helpful. And then, and, and maybe, I, I'd like to hear how you would preach to that situation. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. And, and Tom, I, um, sorry to hear about that, uh, that event that happened. Um, so, I mean, so in all things that, uh, a pastor has to say, a pastor must always be speaking from the Word of God. And in doing so, uh, in speaking from the Word of God, it will always be either God's threat or God's promise. And um, there, there is a time for, for both of those words. Um, and so we just ask the question, when, when someone is reeling over a, a, a tragic event, is this time that God would want us to speak his threat, or is this a time that God would speak his promise? And to come up with this uh, little line that says, when bad things happen in your life, uh, you need to look at what he's trying to teach you, that there is nowhere therein uh, embedded the promises of God. Uh, The implication, at least, is that there's something wrong with you. You you need to wake up to something. You need to fix something in your life. And so that sort of statement um, is inherently law, and it just brings forth then the threats and... and, uh, and uh, wrath of God. Uh, rather, unless the pastor meant it this way, which I don't think he did, uh, rather what we could say is that um, there is a promise that God uh, is giving us, even in the midst of tragedy, that he promises that I will never leave you nor forsake you, even in the midst of this tragedy, um, that, uh, that uh, nothing can separate us between the love of God and Christ Jesus. Now, do we know why things happen? We absolutely do not. God does not reveal that to us. But by starting there, by saying, why did this happen, we're already looking in the wrong direction. Rather, rather than looking at the things that God has not given to us, we're guided to look at the things that he has given to us, and that which he has given to us is the life of his very own son. And he says, I, uh, he who did not spare his own son... Uh, but gave him up for graciously gave him up for you. Will he not also with him uh, give all things? And so there is the promise that I know because Jesus Christ has died for me in the midst of this tragedy. For whatever reason it happened, his promises are sure and true. Hmm. Thank you, Pastor Gagelin. That's is there. There is a way. I mean, Jesus has this question. There's a tower. Apparently, when Jesus was walking around, there's a tower that fell on some guys, and people are trying to figure out why. Why? Why did the tower fall on those guys? And Jesus says, it's not because it's not they sinned. It's not because their parents sinned or whatever. In fact, that's how Jesus precisely asked the question to the man born blind. Why is this man blind? Did he sin or his parents? Jesus said, neither one. But unless you repent, the same will happen to you. The lesson that the Lord wants us to learn in the midst of tragedy, it's, it's not to point out a particular sin, but rather it's to teach us the gift of repentance that we see our own sin and we see, most especially, we see the Lord's mercy and the Lord's kindness uh, in the midst of that. And so so to go and, and try to dig around, there's a temptation when it comes to suffering. Now tell me if the argu- if this whole arg- article, Pastor Gagline, that, you, that you've brought here, is wrestling with this underlying assumption. And the assumption is that if I know why, I'll have some comfort. There's a, there's an assumption that there's comfort in the why, 
So I see suffering, and people ask, why the suffering? Why did this happen? But the problem is there's no, there's no, and the Lord knows it, there's no comfort in the why question. The Lord has different comfort for us, not in telling us why it happened, but rather in saying, I'm with you there in the midst of it. I'm right next to you. So that we're always hunting around for the why. It seems like this article is also hunting around for the why, but the Lord has something different to say. Well, maybe, but I think really this, this article is much more dark, and I can just kind of uh, wrap it up real quick. So the, the final argument is, well, maybe um, this man allows the murder to occur because he knows of an afterlife that's better for him, but then the, the rebut is, but what if that person isn't of the right religious sect, and so he's not going to get experience at afterlife? But then the whole article wraps up like this. It puts God on trial, and, uh, and people are asking, uh, all right, God, why did you allow this thing to happen? And uh, poetically, he says, well, I made everything, and then I, I, the maker, made you sorely sick and demanded that you be well. And then this is the last two lines of the article. It says, uh, when the immeasurable multitude hears this, they speak their verdict quickly in unison and without dissent, guilty. Then God bows, chin to the chest, and struck with awe, for God knows and God deeply sees that God is indeed to blame. This, then, is the story of the problem of evil and its solution. So mm. the, the solution to the problem of evil is to get rid of God, to kill God, because God is the doer of suffering. Uh, he's the one that, that, uh, that, that uh, lets suffering happen, so God's the fault. Now, let's, let's correct the analogy. Yeah, we and, have, and we gotta, and we got to work fast, Pastor Gagelin. We've got yeah. about three minutes. Okay. Uh, let's let's correct the analogy. So you have a man sitting there, a six-year-old beating a four-year-old, and so the man in the story is God. And so what the man does, what God does, is he takes the place of the four-year-old to bear the death in the place of the four-year-old. And who are we in the story but the six-year-old? We're the one inflicting death. We're the one doing the transgression. We're the one committing the crime. And instead of God taking us out in wrath as he rightly should, he takes, he suffers death upon himself so that we could be redeemed. And so uh, I don't know why God allows suffering, but what we do know is that he answers the problem of suffering by taking suffering upon himself, by making him the object of suffering for the sake of our redemption and the sake of our salvation. That's, now that is stunning. I mean, that God does not bring evil to an end, but he suffers evil so that he might give us joy and peace. And not in that story, he's not even just re- rescuing that four-year-old. He's also doing it so he can redeem the six-year-old who's beating him to death. Stunning. Stunning. Pastor Gala, this is great. I mean, if ever there's an example of man trying to self-justify, this article is it. But God uh, will not be judged. He stands as the judge of all, and his judgment for us is that we are righteous in Christ Jesus. Uh, Pastor Gagline uh, is the co-host of Table Talk Radio. You can find more about that at tabletalkradio.org. You'll recognize my voice on that show, doing a little nonsense as well. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church, and you are listening to Cross Defense, where we hear the Lord's voice, His voice, which is not a voice in judgment or a voice of judgment, but which is a voice of kindness for us, a voice of mercy 
a voice of the forgiveness of sins, a voice that comes to us to give us everlasting life and hope and peace, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of all the troubles of this life. Jesus comes to us and he says, hey, I'm right here with you. I will neither leave you or forsake you. Jesus, in fact, prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can pray, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You're listening to Cross Defense. Stay tuned next week. Join us again where we consider the Lord's word and the joy therein. God's peace be with you. Listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314 996 1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at KFUO.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.